Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you as usual from Lexington, Kentucky, and this is episode 15. This is a fun one today, and an easy one, because John Kim is just that kind of guy. John is the Senior Director for Communications and Media at U.S. Kids Golf, which is one of the largest golf companies in the world that I knew nothing about until I met John. He started as a Twitter friend, then when I got to attend a PGA merchandise show in Orlando several years ago, John was one of the handful of people that I had circled on my list that I was going to go out of my way to shake hands with and try to chat up back when those sorts of things were socially acceptable and, dare I say, even in vogue. He was gracious and gregarious in person, burying whatever smug condescension and contempt he, a Vanderbilt alumnus, held over me a simple three-time graduate of the University of Kentucky. He's worked in TV news, he's worked in communications for the PGA of America, and now is in the golf industry proper with U.S. kids. He knows everyone in golf, he's been damn near everywhere in golf, but when he's talking to me, he makes me feel like I'm the most important appointment he's got all day, and there's real value in that skill. Now that my sons are showing an interest in golf, and yes, both the five- and two-year-olds love hitting balls with dad at the local golf course now. John's professional work has a new resonance for me and piqued my interest. What I might have to look forward to if my son's interests in golf prove durable and sincere. We've had several near misses on emergency golf trips together and we share a lot of banter back and forth about how many strokes he's going to give me whenever we do finally get together for our mythical golf match. Since he's worked to become a really good player in his own right, if you take his tweets literally. We touch on all of this and more in what was, again, a very easy, breezy conversation. John's blessed with the gift of gab, and he's a wonderful storyteller. I mean, he is a marketing and communications executive after all. Before we get to that conversation, a reminder that the Blind Shots podcast is a member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows, which you can find at TalkingGolf.com with one G. There you're going to find great podcasts, including the Good Good Golf Podcast and Talking Golf History Podcast. Both of those are personal favorites of mine. They're in my feed. Uh, Do yourself a favor. Check those out. Consider subscribing to them if you don't already. As always, you can interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod. You can find my thoughts and writings online over at OneBeardedGolfer.com. As always, there will be links to the show over on the website and the pertinent links in the show notes from the show itself so i hope you'll check those out additionally the blind shots podcast has an instagram uh, account now i do try to post interesting architectural observations and photos over there so check that out if you haven't already a reminder that this podcast is sponsored by me and just me in addition to playing talking and writing about golf i'm a licensed kentucky realtor with rector hayden realtors i work both with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also work with investors and businesses on commercial properties in Central Kentucky. You can find all about me and about the process over at davidhill.rhr.com. Reach out to me if there's a real estate conversation that you've been wanting to have with a professional. And with that, now on to my conversation with John Kim. So John, what part of your game are you working on right now? Everything. No. Everything. No, there's, there's always something. This is golf. Something is always walk, working and something is always broken. What's broken? So I, uh, what I learned was um, over this past weekend, we had our club championship and 
my mental game is pretty weak. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess we can all say that. Um, during a uh, course of a casual round, I think I'm like a lot of players, and you try to play uh, according to the rules that the USGA set up. But the USGA also kind of saves you with this uh, equitable stroke control, the ESC Max. The worst you can do is make a, uh, a double on your net. Um, and then so when you're fairly when you're a single digit handicap player, uh, there's a lot of holes where the worst score you can take is a double bogey. Um, and that really changes your mental approach. And I don't know that I've been really fully aware of that. Um, but you blow one over the green into the hazard. Um, you drop. Maybe you get it close up and down for bogey. Maybe you don't. And you just pick up and you go to the next hole. Well, when you play in a tournament, you don't get to do that. And one of the nightmares uh, that we heard on day one was one of the guys that took an 18 on a hole, and that gets in your brain. And then you start <laughs> trying to guard against the big, huge number, and your entire game just goes out the window. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, you're playing not to make mistakes, and that's just not a good way to play golf. And I, I learned that in a very painful way. So uh, the short answer is my mental game has to become stronger. I have to learn to deal with pressure uh, and still play my, my type of game. Uh, and then if you want to talk about a specific shot, I, I want a, a stock go-to driver shot, maybe kind of like a low stinger that I know I can get in play and still get out there because uh, uh, when the pressure's on and things start getting tight, man, you've got to get off the tee. I agree. I, I think, knock on wood, that I found that. My, my instructor's got me finishing, taking path over the left thigh and finishing with a little hold-off fade finish. And you know what? It doesn't go as far, but it goes pretty darn straight. That, I will take straight. I will take straight. You, you know, one, one final note on that. So the one of the, the group that I play with, um, the the Kim group out at our course, there's about 12 of us, and and virtually everybody's a pretty pretty decent player. Um, and uh, the guy that I am most competitive with, in a, in a sense, he was in flight two, and these are really good zero to one handicaps who who have many of them have played in USGA national events, qualified for the US Mid-Am, qualified for the USAM, and he wins his flight. I mean, he played outstanding. So for him to play so great and for me to play so bad, uh, that's something that I'm going to have to live with for a year. And I promise <laughs> you, that haunts me in the worst way. See, you need to get him back in a match play tournament because in match play, the USGA is set up for match play. That's what the ESC is set up for. You take your big number, you clear the mechanism, and it, every hole is a fresh start. Like, yeah. I have a match play mentality. When I play, I played in a tournament this weekend as well, and tournament golf is its own very separate creature. It's different than a money game. It's different than any kind of hybrid competition. When you're playing, every stroke counts, putt everything out. It is, It, it wears on you differently. Yeah, it absolutely does. And then, and then the number's going to be up in front of – the entire club and God and everybody else. That's that's just something to that. that again, I got to get stronger, and I will. Right, right. This is the year. This uh, is the year. <laughs> I am, I'm on a 363 day prep for next year's club champ. That's right, and I'm working on my beach body for next year's summer vacation. I promise you, <laughs> a little bit every day. You are the senior director for communications and media at US Kids Golf. You're in yes. Atlanta. Uh, for the listeners that don't know, um, U.S. Kids is the largest maker of junior clubs in the world. 
but it's really evolved and kind of a conglomerate if I've got my yeah. facts straight. Yeah, there are, we have uh, really four pillars of the business. Uh, the one – and it really kind of depends on who you're you're talking to as to what we're, quote, most known for. Uh, we are uh, the largest manufacturer of golf equipment and products for young players um, and uh, very proud of not only the number but the the – way that we serve kids it's it's three different lines uh, up each line is up to nine different sizes uh and each of the lines are designed for a different ability of player so we really fit the player well equipment wise we also are the world's largest tournament host uh, we have over 1600 tournaments a year that concludes as you know David, with the World Championship at Pinehurst, mm -hmm. we actually have two World Championships each year. We have the Teen World Championship uh, and the U.S. Kids Golf World Championship. The Teen is for kids age 15 to 18. Um, the one that is more notable would be the U.S. Kids Golf World Championship for kids age 5 to 12. Um, the uh, That's 1,500 players from around the world often representing over 50 to 55 countries. Oh, wow. Uh, notables such as uh, Justin Thomas or Lexi Thompson or Patrick Reed, you know, a lot of really good players. Uh, Colin Morikawa mm -hmm. uh, have played it multiple times. Um, but it's not – it's not – it's a world championship. So, of course, it's there to identify uh, the top players at a certain gender and age. Um, but – just as much, it is a phenomenal golf experience. Uh, if you don't mind me saying, David, that that my my previous golf life, I was with Turner Sports and the PGA of America, and I'd spent a lot of time around major championships and the Ryder Cup. And uh, when I came to U.S. Kids Golf, I wondered, you know, would this be a a kind of a, almost a letdown because I was used to such big grandiose events i can tell you there's nothing nothing like this u.s kids golf world championship the uh the size and scope of it but the enthusiasm around it the excitement uh and meeting families from around the world and they are all so incredibly uh happy to be there and they're proud of their kids accomplishments and they and they want to show you photos and videos and and you can just see it that this is a pinnacle event for them in their lives uh to a great extent certainly in their golf life uh, i really really enjoy it and you know i i can't think of anything not just in golf but in sports that kind of rivals this there've been movies made about it there've been uh multiple uh, media, every ESPN, Sports Illustrated, Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, they've all been there and they all kind of walk away saying the same thing. That's a wow type event. So uh, we have tournaments, we have equipment, uh, we have a coaches institute. And uh, I, I honestly don't even know the exact numbers right now because it's been one of those years where the numbers have really kind of grown because we've had a digital component to adding coaches as opposed to just the seminars in person. Uh, but it's around fifteen or 1,600 coaches um, around the world uh, that are part of the Coaches Institute. And then our foundation also has uh, purchased a golf course uh, up in Southern Pines, North Carolina called Longleaf. 
And Longleaf is our living lab. And there at Longleaf, we've established a U.S. Kids Golf Academy and a lot of other programs that we hope will ultimately serve young players and families uh, around the world from ideas and products that are born out of what we learned there at Longleaf. Well, I, I didn't send you my notes ahead of time, but you basically just outlined a lot of the stuff, first half of the stuff I wanted to talk about. So thank you for teeing that up. That has a little bit of a long-winded answer. No, no, that's perfect. You know, I'll vouch for the clubs. I've got two little Viking Raiders, ages uh, soon to be six and soon to be three. Um, my oldest, I can tell you the ultra-light clubs maybe kept him in golf. You know, he sees that I play a lot, that I'm an enthusiast. Um, and my mother-in-law had picked up some yard sale junior clubs, and this kid is a, a set of number two pencils, you know, stuck together with rubber bands. You know, just doesn't have – has been tall and lanky since the day he was born. So swinging those big, he- heavy clubs, even though they were the right length for him, it just wasn't happening. Uh, but I went to our local – I went to Man of War here, which is my local range I'm a member of, and they're a, a U.S. kids facility, and got them the ultralights, and all of a sudden it was fun to swing a golf club. Uh, it was was great. So, yeah, I know you have the three lines: the the yard club, which is kind of the the, the baby trainer, uh, you know, for the backyard, the the ultralights, and then you get into a, a tour set. Um, the tour series, right? Yep. Uh, which I assume is for either a little older or a little more advanced players. Yeah, we would call it faster swing speeds. Okay. Um, yeah, right. You can you can be, you know, one of the things that. Uh, about working with kids is you can have five different 11-year-olds, and they're all different sizes, and they're all different uh, ability levels. So so you need to be able to accommodate for, for each of them. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the, on the Tour Series side, once they get, uh, you know, say even nine or ten years old, some of them have become quite advanced. Right. And – on the other hand, we do not want to discount the nine or ten year old, still very young, who wants to learn the game. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why the different lines and the and the different lines would mean things like uh, different stiffness in the flex a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, lighter. The ultralight would be lighter. Different kick points. It's a lot of technical stuff that that I don't want to speak to as an expert, other than uh, ultralight's designed to get the ball in the air easier, higher. Uh, make it really fun uh, to learn the game, and the tour series obviously is gonna is gonna be a little bit more workable um, and and hit different shots with. Well, I'll vouch for the the little ones on the the coaching on the seminars. Was that was the innovation the the move into the digital platform? Was that a COVID response, or is that something you guys had in the pipeline to begin with? No, honestly, it really has been. Uh, at least expedited uh, because of the world that we live in now. Um, you know, so so <laughs> you, you look for you look for little nuggets of of sunshine uh, when it's been kind of a lot of dark days in terms of uh, what the world has had to deal with here. But um, it's allowed the opportunity for a number of coaches. Let's just say you're a coach, and I'm I'm totally making this up. But let's say you're a coach, golf coach who's interested in, in teaching juniors, and you are in a uh, country that's uh, fairly small, maybe remote. We'll make one up. Um, we'll call it Malaysia. I don't know why that came to my head. Uh, well, we may get to a seminar somewhere 
uh, near you once every three or four years. And if that date doesn't work out with your schedule, then you may never become U.S. Kids Golf certified, which your facility may want, right. uh, which you believe would help you in your career and you believe what you would learn quite a bit because you would about best practices in developing young players. Well, now you have that opportunity. You just have to sign up for the seminar online that works for you. Uh, you know, make sure that that uh, that you reserve your spot. Uh, we still keep it to a certain number of of people that can participate, um, and then log in at whatever the time is that that uh, that the seminar online starts. I believe it's six hours now uh, online, and then after that, you go and uh, have to take both a test over the material and pass a test through our partnership with the Positive Coaching Alliance, uh, PCA, as as it's uh, kind of better known. Um, and then once you do that, you are certified. And uh, we also have other levels of certification. I believe the highest level is level three, where you actually go for three days over to Longleaf and you watch and participate in the coaching of young players there, uh, very immersive training and learning to really learn uh, what – the best practices uh, are according to the U.S. Kids Golf Coaches Institute. Well, Longleaf is on my, you know, Pinehurst is a special place to me, Southern Pines, that area. Uh, we've done two buddies trips to that area, and both times our day of arrival has been on the getaway day of the, of the U.S. Kids World Championship. Um, you know, I know 2020 has been a wacky year, and it probably cut down on the international travel. I couldn't tell that the place was any less crowded. I mean, the place was crawling with kids with big smiles and, and loud yelps and, and cries. What? How different did, uh, from your side, from putting on the tournament, how different did it look this year as opposed to what you'd call a, a normal year? Yeah, it was, it was actually quite a bit different, uh, but not the quality of the golf. The quality of the golf was just as strong as ever, uh, and and that's the most important thing. This year we really focused on making it a family event uh, in part because of the ask and the mandates uh, locally regarding things like social distancing. So we did not have uh, the parade, which to me is the highlight of the week because – uh, the parade, uh, we call it the Parade of Nations, where you have all the kids lined up, and uh, we live stream it around the world, and grandma and grandpa from Australia or from England or from Japan or whatever can just log in to our Facebook page, and they watch, and, and, and when their state or their country goes by, uh, you, you, you see it in the little chat, hey, there's there's Billy, uh, there's our Billy, we, we wish him well from you know Topeka, Kansas, and, and it's just Awesome. So uh, I was very sad, uh, but understand, understanding of it, uh, that we couldn't have the parade. A few of the other things that are really popular, some of the team events, some of the um, skills challenges, those things just didn't happen because we were trying to avoid having uh, too many crowds. Right. In uh, circumstance, once, of yeah, course. Once the golf starts, once the golf starts, once you're announced on the tee – uh, oh, also, I believe in the tournaments, they did not do any split tee starts because just trying to keep a certain number of people from congregating on the range or the putting green or something. Um, but once the golf starts, uh, it was there was no difference. I mean, it was uh, really good players, uh, families uh, together, um, you know, the parent caddies. When what you saw, what you saw with the families there and and and, and enjoying themselves and 
and, and playing some golf and leaving. Uh, no, in that instance, you wouldn't see, you know, many of them hopefully were, you know, wearing masks or, or whatever else uh, they were doing for their precaution. There's a lot of hand sanitizers out, things like that. I'll vouch but for in that. in terms of enthusiasm, yeah, enthusiasm for being there, uh, pride of being there, of qualifying, I don't think that there was any uh, any difference there. Speak to this a little bit generally. Is is junior golf a growth market, you know, or, or is it does it exist? Is it a separate market, let's say, than the adult game of green grass and yeah. equipment and those sorts of things as a business? Yeah, you know, um, from my perspective and from our perspective, right now everything in golf is a growth market at this moment, and 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 that's. Uh, very much COVID related, but golf has been identified rightfully so as uh, one of the safer activities that you can participate in. Um, so as you would know, and I'm sure your listeners know, uh, trying to get a tee time right now, whether it's at a daily fee or at a semi-private or, or even your own private course, not the easiest thing because so many things aren't happening, um, whether it's uh, uh, other youth sports that, that kids would be playing in or um, – School, uh, whatever it is, uh, right now people are flocking to the golf course, uh, and we see it in every facet of our of our business. Our equipment sales are where it's hard to keep them in stock. I mean, our biggest issue is inventory. Um, A lot of that going around. Yeah, yeah, uh, from adult uh, all the way down to certainly the the, the kids. Uh, tournaments, uh, you know, we don't have enough spots in tournaments because parents want kids to play. And, and and their their soccer leagues aren't going or their baseball leagues aren't going and and so they they've taken them out to the golf course and wanting to sign them up for tournaments. So uh, overall, right now, yes, golf is definitely a, a, a huge growth market. Uh, generally, I think junior golf has been the one area of golf that has been growing over the last five or ten years, even more so than the adult market. The adult market's been fairly stagnant. Uh, Sometimes it, it, it inches up and incrementally may go down, but for the most part, it's been somewhat flat. Uh, junior golf, for any number of reasons, and, and I want to uh, certainly give credit to, to the, the part that U.S. Kids Golf and our tournaments and our equipment have played, uh, but also you know groups like PGA Junior League and Youth on Course, uh, uh, First Tee, all of those things have, have had a, a uh, kind of a – added effect uh, to get more kids involved and to just introduce. Now, you're not going to keep 100% of the kids that try uh, golf, uh, but if we can up that percentage and it goes from 25% to 33% or something, that's going to have huge dividends down the line uh, for golf in general. So, yeah, I think it's – I think junior golf, youth golf, kids golf – has been good, has been growing. Right now it's growing a lot, and now it's our responsibility as an industry and as a community to retain as many of those kids as we can. You know, you mentioned there, um, you know how the professional golf people talk about the five families of professional golf, PGA of America, PGA Tour, USGA, Augusta National, RNA. Uh, and it sounds like maybe the way that the junior market is evolving that there's – I'm curious about the interplay between someone like your organization, U.S. Kids, uh, that's you know been in this segment for for a long time, 
you know, kind of the interplay with something like first tee programs locally? Is there are you siloed? Or are you competitors, or are you all kind of kind of <laughs> at, at arm's length, moving in the same direction? Yeah, I don't. Uh, th- there's no official uh, relationship outside of the fact that we are big fans, okay, and supporters. Uh, there are a number of first tee chapters that we do uh, have a relationship with, uh, not necessarily the national organization, but certain chapters because many of our coaches that belong to the Coaches Institute are also coaches there at the first tee. Okay. Many of our coaches are coaches of PGA Junior League teams. So, um, you know, I there there are we. I'm trying to think of a specific example, and and I know, for example, the first tee of Southern Pines, uh, uh, and and it may be the first tee of Sand Hills. I'm sorry I, I, if I don't have the exact name right, uh, but we have a relationship with them where they get equipment at a extremely good price uh, for, for their programs. Um, we uh, and and then we donate uh, some amount of equipment i always hesitate to say that because there's no way we could donate as much as we're asked to donate we we don't even have as much equipment as we're asked to donate yeah right um so so uh, all of those all of those things yeah we're uh, it's u.s kids golf is based around a mission it's not based around um just a, a simple P and L or even an idea it's a mission and it's a mission about uh teaching kids uh, to have fun while playing the game and then creating experiences for families. So if we're true to that mission, anything that we do uh, or anything that we can be a part of that advances that means it's a success. And quite honestly, if PGA Junior League all of a sudden had half a million kids playing – Nobody would benefit more from that than U.S. Kids Golf. Right, <laughs> get them coming, right. get them going. That's a good. That's a good yeah. model. Yeah. Um, Same thing with 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 all the other all the other organizations. So, and I'm not. You know, my boss would would would, would get on me if if I keep bringing up a a, a business angle to it. Uh, but from a mission angle, uh, that's great for 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 the family. It's great for the industry, certainly great for the player, the young player. Mm-hmm. And, yes, there, there's going to be a uh, residual benefit for U.S. Kids Golf. So we are rooting for all of these organizations to do well. Good. I have been – you mentioned also the one of the other pillars, the, the U.S. Kids Foundation, which uh, in the Longleaf course down there in Southern Pines, I've been interested in that concept for a while. I've played several courses where that has popped up, and I didn't really know uh, much about it. Um, the and I'll give it the the bullet point. It is a a system of tees on the course set up to accommodate players of all different skill levels, how far they can hit the ball, uh, essentially. And tell me a little bit about the origin of the system. It's an ASGCA collaboration, right? You guys had the yes. architects design yes. it. Um, talk to me a little bit about what the system is and what your kind of adoption rates are. Because um, so I've seen a couple the, of them. <laughs> the system enough. is uh, – uh, it's – what's great about it is it's data-based. It is not a this is what I think. Um, I believe that – boy, I wish I had the, the right number in front of me. So uh, 
this is going to be close. It's around 68%. Your seven iron distance is around 68% of your driver. Uh, Go on. I'm, I'm going to do the math. I'm going to do the math while you're talking. Quite, quite, <laughs> quite just yet, but uh, it's, it's real close to that. So anyways, the point being is for too long, golf courses were set up uh, for two or three levels of skilled players, and then they would just throw – some tees out there and say, okay, you know what? These these are going to be our forward tees, and these are going to be our junior tees. And they were just placed out there, kind of haphazardly, somewhere in front of where the 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 back tees or the men's tees, quote unquote, were. Right. And, and other times, tees were placed where they said, okay, if you drive it from your tees and I drive it from my tees here, we're both going to end up right over here, you know, just in front of that bunker. Well, that's actually not fair. Because that means that you're now going to have a pitching wedge in, and I might have a seven iron in. And that's really not a, a, a fair competition. Uh, granted, you, you, you put me in a position off the tee where we're now going to end up in the same spot, but we don't really have the same shot in. Yeah, you, the difference between wedge. equal and fair, or equal yeah. and equitable. So um, uh, what, this, what this has done is base seven sets of tees – on every golf hole, all based on how far you carry your driver. And that way you may have a – if you've got a driver seven iron in, I am going to have a driver seven iron in. The kid playing with us is going to have a driver seven iron in, all based on on good normal average shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife, who's just learning to play the game, will have driver seven iron in, etc. Uh, and yes, that means that on certain holes, I may hit twice before you get to even tee off. Uh, but it's still going to be fair and equitable and, and most importantly, fun. So what we've learned when we established this, and we named it obviously after the course where we first implemented this uh, there at Longleaf, uh, was that the number of rounds for the men uh, or for the players that play the back tee, the second farthest back tee, or the third farthest back tee, uh, their games really didn't change a whole lot. Uh, The number of rounds that they played didn't change a whole lot. But for the women and for the kids, those numbers increased dramatically, significantly. And uh, for pace of play reasons, everybody got around a little bit faster. Uh, Bill Bergen, who helped uh, designed the first long leaf tee system, a very uh, noted course architect. I love the way that he puts it. He says that, that what it does is it eliminates the inconsequential shots. So there are a number of par fours that from the most forward tees right now, there's a lot of players, and, and I don't want to just single out females or, or, or seniors or kids, but, yeah, just a lot of players. Beginners, that reach, yeah. Yeah, that can't reach the green in regulation. So they have to hit a driver and then probably a three-wood and hope they keep it in play and advance it far enough where now they have a shot to reach the green. Uh, there's there's a, a, a hoe at my course, uh, and I vividly remember when we were first talking about this long leaf tee system. And uh, unfortunately, it parallels in the opposite direction, a hole where I often like to hook the ball. So I was on hole – playing hole seven, but I'm walking up hole 13 – and I had to wait for a, uh, a, a older woman's group. I hope I said that okay. And they all hit really good drives. And I remember 
interacting with them on the fairway, and I said, wow, you, you, know, you seem to have crushed that. And she said, yeah, I hit that one pretty well. And I said, well, if you don't – and 13 is a 440-yard par four from, from where the guys play or from where I play. So I know it's still pretty long for them. And I said, well, if you don't mind me saying so, you are going to have to hit an even better shot to get on the green in two. And she's like, oh, no, I, I can't get on the green in two. And I was like, well, that's not fair. I said, is this a par four for you? She said, yes. I said, well, that, that, that's just not fair for, for anybody to expect you to, to make a par here. And she said, I know. We just play it as a par six. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, OK, well, now that now I understand the the appeal of the, the whole idea of the Longleaf T system. I've been up there to Longleaf and I've talked to players, men, women, old, young. And I've seen the, the enthusiasm that they have for the game because they've made their first birdie or they've made their first eagle or that they've made seven pars in a round. And it's – look, shooting 115 probably isn't much fun, especially when it's not your fault. You just can't get to the green um, in, a, in a certain amount of strokes uh, in order to avoid 10, 15 shots uh, that, that are just automatically added to your score. You know, PB Dye will express that same sentiment a little more colorfully, a little less politically correct. Uh, but he tells he tells great stories about talking to guys down at Sawgrass. He's like, you know, they they played it from the tips and they're having driver three iron in. He's like, he said, you know, he asked him where they played. Did you play it like the pros? He goes, yeah, we played from the back. He said, really? Do you think that's like the pros? Would you have into you know number sixteen? Oh, driver three wood hybrid. He said, you didn't play that like a pro. You played that like a thirteen year old boy. You know, yeah. the, the pros are hitting, you know, driver three wood to the hole. You know, you need to scoot right. up. You need to scoot up about 800 yards on that round. Um, has And you may not know this. This is just my curiosity. How at the clubs where this has been implemented, my favorite is that it's at Big Spring in Louisville, which is probably my favorite Kentucky course. Yeah. It's a private course I got to play through a, a KGA event. It's a Reese uh, Reese Jones complete renovation about a decade oh, yeah, ago. Yeah. Reese is a huge proponent of this. Yeah, he's one. Of, he's an ambassador for this. Um, right. And I could see the tees. And my only question was, do you ever get any pushback or do the superintendents, you know, are they just soldiers on this and they go where they're told, like the, the club adopts it so they're going to make it work. But is it a, you know, is it an extra maintenance hazard? As far as you've no, heard? No, um, and I, I can't speak to it with exact detail, uh, but that is something that both uh, we, as we were discussing it uh, in the early stages, and the American Society of Golf Course Architects, uh, when, when they adopted it, uh, was, is this going to be uh, an extra burden? It's actually often saves on maintenance cost uh, in in places to mow uh if you're smart about it and really this is the thing where you would want somebody like a bill bergen uh or reese jones to to talk to you about how that is the case and i don't want to give false info uh or misleading information but i can tell you that not one course has ever implemented this and said you know this has caused our maintenance staff to either take longer spend more etc okay I believe that, you know, as a as a father of a young golfer, aspiring young guy, uh, you know, I'm always doing that math in my head. When we go out, maybe on a par three, okay, I know he hits it about. If he catches it, he hits it about 50 yards. So I'm like, okay, this this hole is 120 yards. This is a par four, par five for you. Otherwise, you know, we're walking down the fairway together, and I'm doing some quick math. Like, okay, 
you know, just teed up here in the fairway. And he's never asked about par. He doesn't know what that is. But I'm trying to set him up for success where he can, you know, hit a driver, hit an iron or a wedge, and, and have some fun putting around the green. So uh, a big fan of the system. I, as far as adoption rates, how, do you know how many courses have reached out to you guys, ballpark that have implemented or maybe have that in the pipeline? I honestly don't know. Uh Probably not as many as we'd like, only because I think <laughs> we would like 100 percent. Sure. Uh, the the ASGCA, our, our friends over at uh, uh, the Golf Course Architects Group, um, they would have a better idea because this is not something that you can just – you really do want the architect involved. Yeah, so this isn't just putting T markers out in the fairway. There, you know, it could be. It could be, but – if you want to keep what I would call the integrity of the course intact, you need some expert eyes because this is – I mean this isn't just, okay, we're going to space these tees 20 yards apart uh, and, and that, should, that should qualify because some holes, it may be 20, 25 yards. Some other holes, it may be 10, you know, the par 3 versus the par 5, um, and you still want to keep the integrity of the, the challenge in front of you. Gotcha. You, you know, if, if if there's if there's water to carry, if that's what the architect had in mind in order for this hole to play the way it he designed it, uh, they're going to find where to place the tees, not just distance wise, but also placement wise, um, to keep that the, the course challenge uh, still there. Um, so you know, back to your question, there has not been. Um, there, no course that I'm aware of has done this and said, you know, I, it hadn't really made a difference. I wish we hadn't. But I don't have an exact number. Uh, one, because there's kind of degrees of this. And two, uh, most of it has been done through the ASGCA. Well, I, I can definitely reach out to them to, to find an answer. I just didn't know if you guys had had that info. I, I want to switch gears a little bit on you. Uh, talk to mm-hmm. about you, you're in Atlanta. Um, yeah. Talk to a couple of Atlanta questions. Kentucky, where I'm from, you know, we were an early adopter on youth on course. That was a, a big our, – our state association made that a big initiative. We went so far as do we have a, a pilot program, a pilot caddy program that's connected to that. Um, has that been – is that initiative, as far as you know, taken off in, a, in Georgia or in the Atlanta area? Um, uh, you know, there, there's a ton of clubs down there. Louisville yeah. and, and Cincinnati have a big public or a, a big private club scene where they're that kind of initiative can make sense. Lexington, where I'm at, not as much smaller market, but just curious what the reception's been down there, if if any. I am not a hundred percent sure. Atlanta is a kind of a, a, a strange uh, golf market. Uh, I think there are more private clubs than there are daily feet. Oh, I'm sure there are. <laughs> and uh, the the one place that I'm aware of that's made the biggest splash uh, is the newly renovated Bobby Jones Golf Course. And that was part B uh, of my question. I, I wanted to downtown. have you speak to that a little bit because uh, yeah. that's a, a really unique project. It's a, it's phenomenal what they've done there. They have taken what was a pretty awful, the, pretty awful yeah, course. I played I, it. I, mean, I played the old one. I don't. I don't want to call it awful, but I'll call it horrible. How's that? That works. Uh, no, it was. It was just bad. It was just not a great place, and they. It was certainly not worthy of the name. And <laughs> well said. They came in, and what they've done there is just uh, incredible. I mean, and it's a. Uh, 
nine hole reversible layout. Uh, and each hole has two different uh, huge greens with two different flag positions every day. So you can go around it twice and you're basically playing two different courses. Um, and, but even more than that, they've got a just gigantic, uh, youth program there. Uh, every time I've, I've gone by just kids all over the place. It's great. Cause they are working with us kids golf is one of the sponsors. Okay. I, didn't, and, I wasn't sure about that. That, Okay, good. So, so we, you know, we, they, they use our learning program, our player pathway for the kids. And, and you can see that kind of that sticky factor because the kids come and sign in for uh, a few classes and, and then they don't, they bring friends and they don't leave. And it's just been growing and growing. Um, I'm pretty sure they do the youth on course and they block off tea times for, for the kids. So, uh, yeah, you know, that is that is definitely the kind of program that I think a lot of places around the country would do well to emulate, to, to learn from, to come in and copy, uh, get some best practices because they're going to be there and they're going to be strong for a long time. Yeah, and for, for listeners that aren't aware, that was a municipal Fulton County course. Um, City updated at the time. Right, and, and – uh, I don't know what the mechanism was, but a a private entity, a charitable, I guess, vehicle was created uh, because it was not inexpensive. Bob Cup did the design, and it was you know a lot of earth moving, uh, pretty expensive uh, to actually remodel the course and put in you know car paths and all of that. But what you speak to as far as best practices and engagement and and having the programs. Um, for this nine hole course and it, this is this is a an urban course i mean it's not downtown in the financial district but it is this is not some far-flung suburbs vanity no, no, project no, yeah no it's as it's as it's i mean it's pretty much as downtown as you're going to find any place uh any golf course um and yeah the the community involvement has been key uh i i would i'd venture a wager with just about anyone. I mean, I don't. I, there are not too many places like this that that have the tee sheet packed like like they do. Uh, it is. They sensed an opportunity and they have pounced upon it in a great way. Now, you, I mentioned a couple of times that you're in Atlanta. Are you from Atlanta or did did work? I've grown up in Atlanta. I uh I, I was born overseas in uh, in Seoul, but I was in that. Uh, we came to the U.S. before I was even a year old, and we settled in Atlanta before I actually started any kind of school. Okay. Uh, I spent four years, great, wonderful, awesome years in Nashville uh, for my collegiate years, uh, anchor down, and uh, then I've been in Atlanta ever since. Uh, okay. And for people who don't know, you were in the news business. I think you have it on your Twitter profile that you, you worked in. Oh, uh, Yeah. You worked in the news business and the golf business, and golf is better. <laughs> Golf's a whole lot better. I mean, by by a factor of ten thousand. Um, I originally actually wanted to be a a reporter because it seemed like it was a, a good thing to do, and I wasn't smart enough to last in my economics major uh, that I wanted to be. So, uh, but my first gig was an internship at a small TV station in Macon, Georgia. And they said, if you can do, if you can intern here for three months, uh, we'll turn you into a TV reporter and we'll hire you. 
I said, okay, and I lasted two. Uh, that's <laughs> nothing against the uh, city council meetings and the watermelon festivals, but this is not what I want. High school football. So Come on, John. That's the ticket to the oh, big no, time. I, that, that's the cool sports department. I was in news, man. That was uh, – <laughs> uh, we had a city you know, sewer line break, and John, go, go get me some footage and 30 seconds of copy on that. So uh, – I went back to Atlanta. I had been fortunate enough to do an internship at CNN Sports uh, back in the day. And uh, so I got a job at CNN Headline News, and I was there for quite a while, uh, over 10 years. I don't even know. Uh, but I worked quite a bit on the overnight shift. And so you work at night, and during the day you just got to find something to occupy your time. And I decided that it was going to be golf. And uh, as virtually all of your listeners know, golf can become quite a addictive and, and something you can get very passionate about. And so I realized I needed to find a way to, to play more golf. Uh, and by the way, I'm not good. I have no money and I have no contacts. Uh, and I was fortunate that this was right around the time that the, and this is, shows my age a little bit, that the internet became a little bit more of a, a, a common use item and i found a website about atlanta golf called atlanta golfer sent them a note saying hey you guys need me uh <laughs> to to write for your website and they said it was a great site in terms of uh information but it didn't have any real content uh it had like a directory of all the golf courses directions on how to get there but it didn't have any content about the course and i said well you guys need me for that and they said well you're right uh, problem is we don't have any budget. And I said, I don't need a budget. They said, all right, well, then you can name your title. We don't care what you call yourself, and you're in charge of all content. So I was just contacting every golf course in the state basically saying, hey, I'm the the chief poobah or whatever of atlantagolfer.com, and, and I want to write a review of your course. Hey, come on out. And that was – so much fun, and it gave me just enough of a little bit of a golf reputation that when Turner, the parent company of Headline News, uh, started a new division within Turner Sports, uh, Turner Digital, Turner Sports Digital, and their model was going to be to license the digital rights for large sports properties. Mm -hmm. They started with NASCAR.com. Uh, they went with uh, – they had relationships with uh, NBA and Major League Baseball, et cetera, and they did PGA of America, and they needed a content guy. And, oh, wait a minute. John's over here acting like he's somebody doing content for a golf website. If you're going to try that, why don't you do it for real? And that did not take a long time to make a decision for me. I was like, wait a minute. So I'm actually going to get to go to real awesome golf courses, uh, golf uh, destinations and events, and meet with all the cool golf people, and, and you're going to pay me for this? Okay, yeah, I think I can do that. Uh, so that started my life in, in golf uh, professionally, and that was uh, you know, the greatest blessing, and, and I'll always have that as one of the great memories of my life. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, there, there are too many instances to, to recount, but you know, I can tell you that how many people, A, get to ride around Scotland with Tom Watson oh. or uh, – uh, you know, go play as part of your job, go play Bandon Dunes or Pebble Beach or something like that. So 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I've been really lucky, and I understand that, and I know that, uh, and I I try not to. I try to appreciate everything that comes about and everybody's golf fun, knowing that you know it's extremely unfair the opportunity <laughs> that I've had. Well, yeah, you, you know my affinity for Scotland. Now you're, you're speaking my language, and you're just flattering yeah. me because I've got an economics degree. So thank you for that backhanded compliment. <laughs> well, then you're one of the nerds. That's yeah. right, darn right I am. Uh, three times over, thank you. Um, think you can think about this one before you answer. I, I mentioned the five families of golf, and so you were squarely in the PGA of America camp. Any good anecdotes about turf wars or about how interactions? You know, everything's friendly at the at the C-suite level between the executives and all of those. <laughs> but you guys in the trenches, you know, flying around these courses trying to make good TV and good digital copy. Any good turf war stories, or you saw somebody down at Orlando and said, "You son of a gun!" I still haven't forgiven I, you for that. Yeah, you know, I I still have very close relationships with a lot of the folks in the <laughs> golf world, so I can't tell too many stories out of school. Uh, I will tell you this: um, PGA.com was and will probably always be a great beneficiary of one of the most common mistakes that golf people make, right? Because if you're watching any event on television, I don't care whether it is the Players' Championship, the PGA Championship, the Masters, uh, the U.S. Open, whatever you're watching, the, uh, the Mayakoba, most golf fans just type into their browser PGA.com mm -hmm. thinking that, A, everything is run by the PGA Tour, and, B, that PGA.com is the URL for the PGA Tour. So uh, – Quite honestly, we'd get a lot of traffic from people who don't know where they're going. Um, and the irony was that for quite a while, Turner Sports was running both PGA.com and PGATour.com. So there were maybe inter-office uh, Conf conflicts, right? Yes. Right. And then there were a couple of times I remember there was one story that I wrote. I went to the tour championship and I wrote a story. I don't honestly remember the topic of the story. Uh, it might have been it might have been a sit down interview that I did with somebody, maybe an Adam Scott, someone someone like that. And there was a little bit of a debate and the debate was maybe a little bit louder than most about where that story should live. Was it? A, it's a PGA Tour player at a PGA Tour event, but I'm the one that wrote it. So I wanted it on PGA.com. Mm -hmm. Somebody else wanted it on PGATour.com. So those kind of things, and they're fairly easily resolved where we would put like a blurb on one site and just point it to the rest of the article on the on the other side. So there was a lot of uh, kind of cross-pollination and, and, and synergy and s supporting – uh, but there's also some ego involved, uh, th those type things. So, yeah, I don't really have too many. <laughs> I don't really have too many confrontational stories, other than, um, you know, there are different organizations, and and each of them have different. They work together quite well, but they all have different aims and goals and people to answer to. Uh, I Good. Knowing that there's a little conflict, I wouldn't believe if you said everything was perfect. So No, God. no, no. Now, I'm going to turn serious on you for just one second. It, also, another property of the PGA of America, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the show in Orlando. 
the or, at least the licensing part. Right. Yes, the, yeah, the name. The, the PGA merchandise show, the the Super Bowl of the golf industry, as it's colloquially known. The convention business evaporated in the flash of a second this year. Yeah. Yes, it did. It, you know, it's in. I would assume 2021. You know, that's a show that's always in. Is it in February most years? Is it? Uh, January actually. January. Okay, so really, you know, at the start of the new year. I assume that's in limbo, and they're holding out hope for a, a vaccine and, and a change in circumstance. But um, just off the cuff, I know that's not your uh, your bailiwick anymore. But what do you think that looks like going forward? Do you think that is a return to businesses in three years? Is that going to look like it did in 2018, or do you think that this is going to be a, a you know that digital platforms online? You know, groups and communications. Do you think that market, that show, is in for a shift? Best guess. Uh, yeah, I think the show's in for a shift, but it's always been shifting, right? Because 2018 looked quite different than 2015, which looked quite different than 2010. Um, so yes, I can tell you with with a high degree of certainty that. 2023 will look very different than the last show that that uh, I, I was at. Um, and and I've been to I I always joke every year that I've been to about forty or fifty of them, but it, I think I'm getting close to twenty of them. Uh, the 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 medical aspect of it aside, and and I really can't speak to that. I I hope sure. that we can get past all this uh, sooner rather than later. But the purpose of the show I feel has been the the thing that shifted the most for a long time. It was about introducing new product for the year. And now with the advent of uh, digital, uh, with, the, with the increased product cycles from a lot of companies, uh, they often have a spring release, a fall release, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You, you already know – I mean you already know what's coming out prior to everyone getting to the show. So the one thing that you can't replace – are the relationships that are made or or, or strengthened in person uh, somewhere like the show where you have so many people representing so many aspects of the industry all together uh, and the people that you meet and uh, the discussions that you have and the ideas that are formed, that's the most valuable thing. So if the show changes, one, I think it will be more catering to that uh, aspect of it. Uh, and two, I hope that's something that doesn't go away because many of my closest friends, not just in golf but in the world, are, are people that I've met and, and really look forward to visiting with uh, there, there in Orlando. Um, and then even when one or both of us were to leave whatever respective positions we had, some of them aren't in golf anymore. Uh, but they'll show up um, because of the relationships that they have formed uh there in orlando so it's 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 an important it's important part of golf and less right now less important product wise but more important uh community wise and you know you told me that i i went to the show i guess might have been the 2015 show so several years ago and you you told me that before i got there and i found it true although i think what is going away there was such a dichotomy there were the guys with the big displays in the front of the 
the convention hall, like U.S. Kids, like the big OEMs, Callaway and TaylorMade, you know, they had their big convention spaces. And they were all out there just glad-handing. You know, easy-go carts and and all of that had just an army of guys uh, glad-handing, making connections, all of that. What I loved was the guys in the back of the convention hall, the guys with the little 15-foot booth that were, you know, their whole first half of the year was made. They were pushing product. They weren't weren't glad-handing. They were there to sell you something. It was a Absolutely. totally, you know, it was it was two shows under, it was two tents in one circus. Um, and, you know, I, I think what I'm hearing from you and, and the way I kind of think through that is that part of it is has got to change. You know, that will be, it, it, it doesn't have to, but I think it will become increasingly more difficult for that part of the model to be sustained. But th- those were the colorful stories. I mean, that's where those you got the characters. Stories. You know, one of my, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories uh, is... One of the first PGA shows that I ever attended, uh, and honestly, I, 20, 2007 maybe or something like that, and I'm working for PGA.com, and I'm trying to find things that are interesting to write about. And I walk by a booth, and these guys are in these outlandish outfits, and they got this loud music, and it's just annoying everybody. And I don't believe that they've been drinking, but they're acting like they've been drinking. And I stop in front of their booth and I give them this this like look of wonderment, like, are you being for real right now? And the, one of the guys comes over to me and he says, uh, what do you think? And I said, this is so garish and, and ugly. I think you're going to make millions of dollars. <laughs> and the guy looked at me, he goes, that's my man right there. So that was Loudmouth Golf's introduction to, to uh, the PGA show. And I became close with the, my friends at Loudmouth Golf for, for a long, long time. Uh, you know, those are some great stories. The, the, the ones that are able to come in and, and sell their idea. Yeah. It's not just a product. It's an idea. There's another part of me quite honestly, that feels a little bit bad because everybody there, those booth spaces, I'm telling you, are not cheap. Oh, no, no. And everybody there is there with the idea uh, that they are going to – I'm talking about the, the, the small vendors that you're discussing with the idea and the hope that something's about to change their life. They have come up with some concept that they believe makes a big difference. Some of it's – really innovative some of it's just one degree different than something that they had the year before uh some of it i I, I just don't even understand some of it's the golf bicycle that guy's there every year isn't he (laughs) (laughs) but you know it's hard it is hard to break through in the market and i always feel like gosh you know this guy's just spent an enormous amount of money guy or girl or group have spent a lot of money and they are not getting the the pickup or the attention or the promotion that they really really want. And I'm not saying that it was a bad idea to show up uh, at all. All I'm saying is 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 I just feel bad because I don't know what the success rate is for those companies, right. but my guess is it's probably not as high as as we'd like. Yeah, there there I think there's there's a networking. Uh, aspect to the show and there's a there's a big section that's covered in hope that they're they're there yeah. and they hope you know yeah which is a little different position but well thanks for the the thoughts on that um get out of here in a moment you are a member of one of atlanta as you said atlanta's many private clubs 
Um, you described it to me as a as a real players club. I think your antidote antidote earlier. Ridiculous. Um, talk to me a little bit. Is in a competitive environment like that, do the families and the the kids get squeezed a little bit, or is it is it a, a facility that there's room for both? You know, that was my thought of this entire of the, from the green grass perspective. All of this renewed interest in golf is with it's so hard to get a tee time. Are the initiatives like youth on course and getting kids on the course are they getting squeezed out in favor of the people that actually pay the bills? Yeah, uh, I can't speak for a lot of other facilities. Um, at our course, uh, kind of you know weekend mornings are going to be mostly just reserved for the guys that that the the primary members uh, and everybody's kind of got their standing tea times. You can probably get out pretty easy on the, in the afternoons with family time uh, during the week as well. The uh, ours Berkeley Hills is a, is a country club and it's one that I'm immensely proud of. Uh, I'm on like three committees or something um, because it, it really is home to a lot of really good players. Uh, we have a nice pool. We have tennis courts, quite frankly, as same somebody f- from my position, uh, I don't have kids, uh, so I don't. I don't really care how good the pool is. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and uh, yeah, the the pool's fine. It's nice. Um, my wife and I go and play pickleball some, but you know, I, uh, if 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 I'm in a committee meeting and somebody says, "Yeah, we got a certain amount of money, and what do we want to do? Do we want to repave the tennis courts? Do we want to resod the tee boxes?" I'm voting tee boxes every single time. So, so yeah, you get too many people like me, and and all of a sudden, families may feel a little squeezed. At the same time, I I work and advocate very, I work for and I advocate strongly for uh, getting more kids and families involved in golf, and I'm trying to be very conscientious of that. Uh, and that would mean that creating an atmosphere that is welcoming for families, regardless of just the golf component. Um, the I think that. Kids at our particular club uh, are very happy there, uh, and I say that because from a from a very kind of myopic perspective, but they've grown up to become very good players. Uh, ben Ship, who uh, is one of the top amateur players in the world right now, uh, he's a very highly accomplished NC State player. Just shot a 58 on our course, which is exceedingly Ooh. hard as it is. Yes. Uh, and then he qualified for match play at the USAM. Uh, another kid that I've seen grow up from, you know, whatever, 10, 11 years old, and now he's being recruited by all the schools. He just won the future masters. Um, so I love I, I love watching the kids go from just somebody who liked to chase balls around on the putting green to, you know, being able to spot me three or four aside and, and kick my butt pretty good. Um, so – yeah, but there is there is that the, the the kids that are there for golf are go, at our at this particular club are going to be happiest, uh, and hopefully there's a lot of those. Gotcha. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's the case for every club. I think there's a lot of clubs in the area that a lot of the members. I have a goddaughter, and they belong. Her family belongs over to Cherokee, which is one of the real high end clubs in America. Yeah, and. Uh, nobody and and they pay a lot of money to be a part of the club. Nobody in the family plays golf, so but there's enough activity there family-wise for that still to be a worthwhile investment for them. 
Right. It, it's interesting. I think every town that has multiple clubs, you you see that dichotomy. There's some that are where the golf is a primary draw. You know, almost almost a golf club proper versus. Mm. Yeah, the, I, I'd say we we're in that space. Yeah. Versus, are they transitioning? You know, Atlanta is a big enough market. You can do that. You can have golf clubs, and in, in down the street, you can have a much more you know family oriented. Have your your gym fitness membership on site and a, an Olympic pool and, yeah. and all of that stuff. You know, that middle market, everyone's trying to figure that out. Um, you know, that, that balance between offering amenities to get warm bodies and, and revenue streams in the door versus what kind of experience, you know, you've got to pick. Um, that is, if you get that one figured out, you let us know because I think there's <laughs> going to be a lot of people that want that. Yeah. Uh, I, I've already spent all my hair trying to figure out other problems. Um, what's your favorite on-course wager? What's your standard game? I'm a Nassau guy. My friends, we we play a two or five dollar Nassau and try to keep things from getting out of hand. What what do you guys play? So uh, probably the one that's the most popular. We we've, we've got a few, but the one that's uh, the most popular, we do. Uh, we'll have eight to twelve players, and everybody plays their own ball out. Uh, and it's a two-man best ball, but you don't know who your partner is until after the end. So then we do a we have a uh, an app that'll randomize the teams, and another app that's kept all the scores. And then all you have to do is drag the names together, and it'll give you a best ball score. So kind of a blind draw deal. Yeah. Okay. Two-man two-man best ball blind draw. Uh, that's that's probably our standard game. And then every once in a while we'll do something called an Irish Rumble, uh, and it's another one. We use the Golf Game Book app. Uh, and that is uh, four versus four versus four or, or four versus four, however you want to do it. And the first six holes, uh, you count one score. The next six holes, you count two scores. The next six ho- five holes, you count three scores. And then on the last hole, everybody's score counts. And uh, that's a lot of fun, and that's a lot of pressure because uh, if you're the – if you're the stooge that hits one OB on 18 and cost your team, cost everybody in the group 10 or 20 bucks, uh, it's a quiet lunch for you. Yes. You know, on our the buddy trip I mentioned, we that's where we get into the exotics. We'll play match plays, you know, on the way out and the way in. We mix in all kinds of different games, and we've got a we've done a team component the last three years, and yeah, there have been some sweaty palms and some puckering up uh, on some of those. Uh, probably as mad as I've ever been on the golf courses when I've let the team down. Uh, you know, when we were in a position to, to win and it didn't happen. Um, a few years ago, we were at Ford Plantation on a buddy's trip, uh, which is a course outside of Savannah, Georgia, super nice place. And on 18, I had I hit a phenomenal recovery shot or something, and I had about two and a half feet for par. And if I make it, my group wins, and if I miss it, my group loses. And uh, I didn't even hit the hole. I, I to this day, this was this was five six years ago, whatever it was. To this day, I I still have bad dreams about that putt. And I think it was a cumulative five or six hundred dollars that that putt cost. Um, and they let me know about it too. <laughs> well, they're your friends, of course they do. Yeah. Well, that was that was tough. What's what have been your favorite places? Your favorite golf trips? Outside of work, um, just you and your buddies. Uh, uh, here's just a straight brag, and this is just me by myself. Okay. Uh, a number of years ago, um, I had some time that I could take off, and I got a random invite on Twitter. 
I said, I want to take a golf trip. Where should I go? And a random invite on Twitter that says, if you come out here to L.A., I can get us on L.A. Country Club. Oh, wow. So I said, well, I'm going to build a trip around this. So I, I made some calls. I, I, I contacted people I knew, just a lot of inquiries and beggings and all this stuff. So anyways, by myself, I go out to L.A. I stay at uh, Captain Corey Pavin's house uh, because his he lives right centrally located, um, and I got to know him and, and his family uh, during the Ryder Cup in Wales. Uh, and I played around at Bel Air at Riviera and L.A. Country Club. And then I went, drove a few hours north, and went up to the San Francisco area and played Olympic and California Club. So that was five courses in three days and uh, and then flew home. And I thought, oh, that's the kind of golf trip that nobody will really be able to match. Nope, I've got nothing on that. I might <laughs> I might have considered taking up tennis after that one because it was. Yeah, and, and 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 there are little micro stories within almost all of those rounds. But I will tell you that the round at Bel Air, um, I got involved in a in a game with my host and two other people, and I didn't know what the stakes were. And these are people that could, you know, that my net worth is their lunch budget for the week. Mm-hmm. I did not know. And then around the sixth or seventh hole, I heard one of them say that my partner was down like thousands of dollars. And I just – for a, about a hole and a half, I couldn't swing the club. I couldn't <laughs> even draw it back. And my caddy kind of gave me a stern talking to, and I and I, I said, I can't – I'm not having fun. This isn't – I can't play for this. I, and he says, you don't have $100? And I said, oh, no, I got 100 bucks, But – but I heard so-and-so say that he was down like $4,000. And uh, he said yeah, – they just started laughing. He goes, they play together every week. They come up with the stupidest side bets, and they never pay. So <laughs> don't I, worry about that. You're playing for 100 bucks." I said, oh, I can handle this. And by the way, I did. I birdied the last hole for my team to win. Nice rally. You know, I, yeah, I've got I, – I have my college buddies that I still occasionally golf with. They – I could never keep track of what they were gambling on, how much money they had spent of each other's. Um, yeah. I, my rule of thumb with the guys I play with, if at the end of a friendly game you've got to write a check, that wasn't your friend and it wasn't just a game. You've just been – you were the mark. So <laughs> if you had to – you know, if, the, if you got the vaccine for COVID tomorrow and you were able to get away, just your wife said, okay, you've got two days. Uh, if you could get in a car, get in a plane to go play somewhere, where are you going? I did this this year. I went down to Southern Pines. I played Mid Pines and Tobacco Road until my feet bled, and I was the happiest man in America at that moment. Where actually, you... I'm actually doing something similar to that next month, uh, I believe, in Southern Pines, uh, courtesy of uh, uh, the work group here. Um, but if I had my choice and travel time not – Right. Not being an issue. Uh, I really, really enjoyed Bandon Dunes. Well, just what a pure golf nirvana. Now, the the one caveat to that is is give me some decent weather. Um, so if I if if I can pick my spot and pick my weather, I'm probably going to do Bandon. And if I can't pick my weather and I just have to take the chances of what what God's going to give me, uh, then I may do. Uh, kind of the Monterey coast of California. 
those are, are two places. I've been to the monitor. I've had drinks in the, the bar at Pebble Beach, but I haven't played out there. We did our honeymoon out. We split it between there and San Francisco. So beautiful piece of the earth out there. Uh, Amazing, yeah. Two fine destinations. John, thank you so much for your time. You've been very David, gracious. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always good to talk golf with you and, and talk to you in general. So uh, keep those kids uh, keep those kids at it and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you again. It would be difficult not to like John. He's got a passion for golf, yet at the same time, appears to keep a fairly sensible perspective about him. I feel fortunate to count him among the people that I've gotten to know a little bit inside the golf industry. As you heard, he's a great talker and a storyteller who happens to be blessed with stories that any golf tragic such as myself always revels in hearing. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I hope you liked what you heard here and that you'll subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast feed service and maybe share an episode with your friends or retweet the show link on social media. If you're feeling patriotic, leave a rating for the show on iTunes. Tell the world what you think of the show. We'll let the chips fall from there. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now, but I will try to do better next time. And I hope you will join me next time for the next episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. But most importantly... I hope you're being safe and smart and keeping sane out there. We will get through this, and someday this war on COVID-19 will end. Until then, when you're playing golf, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. Let's play.